You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thank you for gathering us to worship, to sing your praises, to be focused on you, Lord Jesus, in the spirit this Lord's day. Now, as we look at this psalm, your psalm, we pray for understanding and for inspiration from your word. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Well, I've chosen Psalm 147, which is our lectionary reading to focus on uh, in this morning's worship. I don't need to tell you that we live in a highly distracted age. That's not new news to you. That with our smartphones and media, uh, we are constantly uh, multitasking and finding it difficult to focus. And I find the Psalms is a kind of antidote to that distracted life. The Psalms I see is Jesus' prayer book. We can picture uh, Mary and Joseph praying this Psalm, Psalm 147. Uh, You can picture Simeon and Anna understanding, well understanding Psalm 147. You can picture in the life of Jesus, his prayer life being shaped by Psalm 147. The concluding psalms in the Psalter, four or five, are Hallel psalms from Hallelujah. They begin and end with praise the Lord. Living between the Hallelujahs may be a good title for this psalm. What does it mean for us to live between the hallelujahs that at the start and at the end of each day, at the beginning and the end of each life, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The antidote to a distracted life. Last semester I taught a course on preaching and culture and it meant reading a lot about the secular age. And in that reading, we kind of came to an obvious conclusion, five students and myself. All five have graduated now, and all five are seeking pastoral ministry. I felt like I was in a group of peers, uh, not with students. We understand here at the Advent very well that our justification before God, our salvation is by God's grace, his atoning sacrifice for us, taking away the burden of our sins. That's emphasized often. I hope it's emphasized, I think it is, every Sunday in every service here at the Advent. But what also needs to be understood in the light of that, salvation by grace through faith, is the fact that our significance, our purpose, our meaning is also a gift In the secular age, we've come to determine that significance is something that we achieve. It's something that we create. Meaning and purpose is something that's left us up to us. As Ernest Becker says, the burden of the Godhead lies on you to come up with meaning and purpose. Well, that's not true. Significance, like justification, 
is a gift. Meaning and purpose is not something that we can achieve, that we can engineer, that we can create. It's something that we receive. We are significant because of God, because we're made in his image, because he has spoken to us. This psalm begins, hallelujah, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. There's three stanzas to this psalm. Each one begins on this note of praise. And then it offers an explanation as to why you're singing hallelujah. I don't know what the tune of this psalm would have been. But there was somebody like Zach back in the day that this psalm was set to music and it was sung. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. This psalm was, is a post-exilic psalm. It's a second temple psalm. You know the history of Israel. The uh, Israelites for 400 years were in bondage in Egypt. And that's the first exodus. And God gives them the land. They developed the tabernacle and all of that. Uh, the reality of um, God bringing the people of Israel back from bondage into the promised land. And that had all sorts of events attached to it. The Passover, the creation of the tabernacle, the understanding of what it was to receive the law of God at Mount Sinai. But then you go through a long period of judges and kings and disobedience on the part of Israel, and they end up in Babylon in exile. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah describe why they were there in Babylon. But then after 70 years, the Lord brings Israel back, a second exodus, but this time they're limping back to the promised land, and the promised land doesn't seem very promising. But God then institutes a second temple, brings back the Passover, the law is understood through Nehemiah and Ezra. It's read to the people. And in a sense, Israel is reconstituted, creating a kind of cradle for the incarnation. Humble, very humble. And God designs to bless Israel so that Israel will bless the nations. But along with that blessing is a great deal of humility and sacrifice, as well as privilege and responsibility. Well, this is a psalm that they sung. The exiles sang. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. Do you see the juxtaposition there? He heals the brokenhearted. He determines the number of stars. And the reference to stars is an allusion back to the promise to Abraham that I will make of your people more than the stars. But it also has an understanding of the worship of the stars that the Assyrians and Babylons practiced. But it's God who controls the stars. He calls them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit the Lord sustains the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Stanza one. 
what it means to start over. It's a good New Year's psalm. The psalm is countercultural in a distracted age. You learn to pray the psalms the way Elizabeth did or Simeon did or Jesus did, and it's a bulwark against the distraction, the disorientation, because the burden of significance lies on God, not you. It's just there for us to receive and to understand. Uh, for a couple of years now, we have been praying for a pastor by the name of Andrew Brunson. I'm sure many of you have heard of his name. A missionary pastor in Turkey from the mid-90s, but then more than two years ago arrested by the Turkish authorities and accused of terrorism, of all things. In October, after two years and five days, he was finally released. And Andrew describes his experience, or at least one aspect of his description I'm pulling out. If I had been released after the first year, I would have been lying on the floor, curled up in a fetal position, suffering from PTSD. In the second year, God started to rebuild me. Noreen and I were in the prison together for 13 days. God had to keep me in prison for another two years. And he came to realize that God, you know, and, and this is a beautiful part of his testimony. He all through acknowledges his own weakness and his own brokenness. He gives credit to his mother's faithfulness. And his description is, I mean, it's just so unique. He was asked why in one of his court appearances he forgave the people that were bearing false testimony to him. And he was asked, how did you come to do that? To, in the courtroom, offer forgiveness. And he said, my mother made me do it. His mother said to Andrew, there's been a long history of imprisoned Christians and martyrs for the faith. There's a long line, and now you're in that line. Amazing. And he gives a lot of credit to his wife, Noreen, who uh, the strength of her faith and this is what I find so interesting is, you know, he's got a Ph.D. in theology. He's been a pastor for a number of years. He preaches all the time. But he credits his wife's 15, 20 minutes a day in the presence of Christ as the strength of her life. And that strength became his life, strength, and a challenge to him. Isaiah Chapter 50, verse 10, meant a lot to Andrew. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of, the servant, of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. God had saved a beleaguered group of Israelites and brought them back to the promised land in order to bring about 
the incarnation, to prepare the way so that there was a Mary and a Joseph and a Simeon and an Anna to receive the incarnate one. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? I don't know if 2019 is going to be a tough year for you or just an especially good year and blessed. But in either case, how good it is to sing praises to our God and how pleasant and fitting to praise him. Second stanza, and I'll pick up the pace. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Verse 7, make music to our God on the harp. And then this sort of... Uh, Almost jubilant expression, because in this psalm, covenant and creation are woven together. God, who is sovereign over the stars, but sovereign over redemption, both are woven together. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills, provides food for the cattle, for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of horses, and his delight is not in the legs of the warrior. Neither horsepower nor military muscle. Could have been an angelic army when Christ came, but it wasn't. It was an angelic choir singing praises to God. It could have been angelic warriors in Gethsemane. That's what Peter wanted, but it wasn't. Instead, it was the humility of the cross and the way of weakness and suffering to bring about our salvation. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Who put their hope in his unfailing love. Regardless of diagnoses, regardless of brokenness, regardless of disappointment and disorientation, who put their hope in the unfailing love of God. And then the final stanza in verse 12. Again, Exhort the Lord Jerusalem. Praise your God Zion. And then a description that is especially appealing to exiles who have come back from Babylon who now are rebuilding Jerusalem. And they're doing so under the spiritual direction of Nehemiah and Ezra and the reading of the law. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest wheat. And then he sends his command. By faith, the author of Hebrews says, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible, that he sustains all things by his powerful word. This word applies to creation and this word applies to the covenant. He spreads the snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down the hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob. Now the defining aspect in your life and mine for this coming 2019 is that we are defined by the word of God. That word gives us the meaning and purpose. That word which we have before us in written form 
But that word which has been made itself in person to us, and the word was made flesh. Maybe this is why John 1 is the lectionary reading corresponding with Psalm 147. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, sisters and brothers, defines us. It's that word that has made us. It's that word that we need to depend upon this year. Against all the disorientation and the distraction and the confusion. And the Psalms serve as an antidote to that. One last thought. Cotton Mather was a highly influential pastor and scholar. And the only reason I'm bringing him up is because I have a friend in California who's uh, written a book on Cotton Mather and studied him thoroughly. He's uh, Rick Kennedy. He's a professor. But he's drawn out Cotton Mather's vibrant evangelical faith in Christ. At the age of 18, when Cotton was graduating from Harvard, he describes in his diary his closure with Jesus Christ. Now, some of you who are in business, you understand that term. You, that term has a uniqueness to it. Uh, you've brought closure. Those of us who've grieved sort of look for closure. But he speaks of that term, closure with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had reached a point of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that defining moment provided by the grace of God, moved by God's Holy Spirit to bring closure with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think I would be, wouldn't be very responsible for me without posing at the end of this year and the beginning of a new year, have you had that closure with Jesus Christ? Could you say with Cotton Mather that you've had a glorious transaction with the living God, by the grace of God, to really belong to God. Cotton Mather had a really difficult life. Thirteen of his fifteen children died. He prayed night after night for Abigail, his first wife and the love of his life, and he felt like he had Confirmation from God that she would survive the illness. But she died. And he wrote to his children, It may be that the Lord will ere long enable me to penetrate further into his nature, into his meaning and the mystery of a particular faith. However, I have met enough to awaken in me a most exquisite caution. He was humbled by the fact. Humbled by the frailty of human life, by its mystery, but always confident in the sovereignty of God. God was God. God was good. And Cotton's job was to trust and obey God. A devastating measles outbreak in 1713 took his second wife and twins and his prayer was this, for the grace to be a model to my congregation, holy in conversation, with people 
and disposed to inquire into the glory of the Savior. At the age of 50, Cotton noted in his diary, my life is almost a continual conversation with heaven. My life is almost a continual conversation with heaven. May that be true of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.